You're listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, episode 102. You're talking about putting your fuck parts in my head where my brain lives. You know, in nature, only a handful of creatures made for life. But isn't that, like, cheating? We can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why not? The safety word is banana. It is so refreshing to be with someone who likes to fuck outside the box. This is the Touch of Flavor podcast. Dating and relationship advice by kinksters for kinksters. Join us as we tackle BDSM, sex, non-monogamy, and how to build extraordinary relationships in an ordinary world. And now your hosts, Cassie and Rigel. All right, folks. So today we're going to be talking to co-creation about their book, This Heart Holds Many, where Co talks about their family as far as their interesting dynamics with the polycule that is their many parents growing up as a poly kid in a community of other poly folks, getting some insights on how poly kids manipulate their uh, adults a little bit and how adults can, if you are a polyamorous person who has children navigate some of those waters. We're going to talk a little bit about Ko's current family situations and where they have gotten past the book. And we're just going to dive into a lot about being, well, people in polyamorous families. I'm really excited to dive in. The book was incredible to read. I recommend taking a peek. And without further ado, here's Ko. Welcome, Ko. Welcome on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to have you on and particularly talk about the book that you wrote. I've read it. I think it's really cool. And uh, even my kiddo is a little, little uh, as I, I mentioned as we were getting on, kind of nerding out over the book. So can you tell, yeah. so can you tell us a little bit about the book that you wrote, um, This Heart Holds Many, right? Can you just give us like, if someone's sitting there going, I have no idea what book this is, who Co is. Can you just give us a little clip note version of, of what you wrote? Absolutely. So, hi, my name is Co-Creation. I use they, them pronouns, and I consider myself the sex educator for the 21st century, coming from a second-generation background. What that means for me is that I grew up with a polyamorous family, We used extended networking style polyamory to create a network of different families and households within the community that did like shared resourcing and community events. And my family was a part of that. So I wrote a book about that experience as I was growing up. Um, Growing up, I've also been interested in the greater polyamorous like movement and thought form so I did a bit of media as a a kiddo and have been following the thread of polyamory since and I noticed that there was a pretty significant dearth on of information out there on families I saw a lot of media coming out of people opening up marriages or figuring out how to talk to other family members, like in a coming out process, both of which I think are fantastic. But I didn't see anything that was representing what I had always known. And I thought that I could handle being the person 
who was going to be asked all the questions and get a lot of the hate mail. Because I know that there's a lot of youth out there, but I managed to find a uh, publisher, Thorn Tree Press, who specifically focuses on sex positive and non-monogamous media um, in, in like a publishing press format. So I had the opportunity to write a book about it. And that's how this Heart Holds Many came to be. And with talking about the family and the community that you grew up in, right, it definitely sounds like it really was in, in your background that sort of, you know, it takes a village sort of a thing going on. And I think for a lot of, you know, kids who identify as like poly kids or kids of poly families, that can be great. And it can also be not so great depending on the different experiences each person had. So what inspired you to like actually take the step of writing the book? Was it because you wanted to share good experiences, bad experiences, or just your experiences in general? So there's a term called digital nativity. And it is someone who grew up with like digital technology as a part of how they were learning to interact with the world, right? Like you've always known a world with tech. So in that way, when I was growing up, like I was starting to build a brand for myself by interacting on social media Mm -hmm. and your brand is sort of like a projection of who you are. And this projection of who I am is a really confident poly kid. And that story is interesting enough that like even offline, it's always been this, the story and question I bring up and I talk about and I get asked about, right? So when it comes to book writing, you write what you know. And I heard a piece of advice a long time ago that said, if there's one question that you get asked over and over again in your life, make that the thing that you write about because it's going to easily come from you and you are, that kind of makes you that niche expert on that topic because it's always on your mind. So I had this like brand persona content creator, like thing happening in my teens during the internet and social media revolution. Um, And then I was using or having this conversation that I've been having throughout my whole life, sort of as a way to solidify my brand a little bit more. Um, I know that on this podcast, you do like a beautiful wide range of topics. And I was finding that like trying to do all of that was overwhelming to me. Whereas if I was able to focus my offerings into this aspect of myself that the world needed, as far as I saw, then everything kind of like, I was able to manage everything, both my social media time and use, how I want to frame my activism and then how to like, how, for me, how to reflect on my childhood. Was that the answer you were expecting? No, I think that that is, <laughs> it's not the answer I was expecting, but I think that's an amazing answer. So I, I think that's one thing as folks who are, you know, in the relationship spaces or the the sex educator spaces is a lot of folks don't realize that, like, you know, narrowing down on the things that drive them. And by doing so, they can kind of more discover things about themselves and be able to help people in that in that particular area better. So wasn't the answer I was expecting, but I think that's an amazing answer. <laughs> With this being sort of a, a thing that was a, a process, how long did it take to write the book? Is it 
was it something where you were like jotting things down for a long time and then finally got around the writing or how, how long was that process for you? I also joke that this book taught me how to write books, um, which is apparently a writer's joke that like, I felt like I didn't know where to start. And so I had a lot of it in my head and like, like I'm boiling underneath my skin and I would like put pen to page and not figure out how to start, you know, like, how do you, how do you start once these, these story of your childhood? It's a lot. So I ended up, having several like conversations with a friend where they sat down a little bit like a podcast interview and they would just ask me their questions about my life. And then we were, uh, we had it recorded. So then I was able to transcribe all of those interviews and figure out my storyline from there. So that took like a, a couple of years of figuring out, you know, with, when the conversation would happen and getting the recordings together. And then I put pen to page for probably about two years. Mm. I didn't know where I wanted to end the book. And it turns out I needed to end the book, like where my life was when I was writing the book, which felt incredibly meta. Um, (laughs) And, and was an interesting ending to the book that I couldn't have had before I was living the moment. Chronologically, I was writing it between Um, early 2016 and the middle of 2018. So I was also doing full-time case management job at that point and was doing a lot of writing in the middle of the night. (laughs) Uh, The book released in March of 2019. And so last year I went on tour and book tour for the spring and summer and uh, in the fall landed back here in San Francisco. Awesome. So this was your first book that you've written do you plan to do more so what's really funny is I was at my book my book launch happened during the weekend of Southwest Love Fest last year which is a really great uh, polyamory conference that happens in Arizona and they invited me there for a book launch and I remember being in the airport and being like, I'm so, you know, kind of starting to feel the relief come in of the process. You know, I'd been writing for a long time. The book was about to release. And then all I had to do was go on tour. And I just felt like I was starting to hit my stride. And I was like, okay, cool. So this is, I, I feel good. I feel like I've written a book. Whoa. And then immediately, like a friend of mine messaged me and was like, hey, if you have any ideas for children's books, I know of an independent publisher who's curious about your work. And I was like, oh, fascinating. And I had that moment of like creative rush where like a whole new storyline like hit me at the same time. And I'm like standing at baggage claim, like furiously typing on my phone. Um, <laughs> and it just, it was so, it was so classic. I, I felt so dumbstruck. Um, so I've been working on a children's book for about a year. And I'm at the point, I'm, all, I'm real close, and I've just been really wanting to get a lot of my own backstory and art direction um, as clear as I can, because I know from my previous experience working with the media that, like, you need to know what your vision is in a strong way so that when they try and, you know, collaborate or negotiate on your vision that you are... Um, confident and what you can present as like, no, this is important here and here's why. And then I'm doing a really representational like 
uh, rainbow-based children's book. I'm really stoked about. Awesome! I look forward to it. We've got we've got the little the little one, uh, and she's you know an infant. But I'm constantly looking for books that, well, aren't the the typical mommy daddy books <laughs> that they make for youngsters. So I'll I'll be looking for that. Absolutely. And if you don't mind if I plug for a second, um, I have a Patreon that's active. And at my $5 level, I do media recommendations. And specifically, it's my way of being able to highlight different uh, intersectional um, children's books and children's media. So that's a really big thing that I love to do. That's awesome. Yeah, we can put that in the show notes cool. for folks. So that way they can they can check that out. Awesome. So I wanted to bring this up because I thought it was really kind of unique when I was I was reading the book and you referred to yourself as a poly kid in the book. And um, that is actually what my son, who is now almost an adult, has referred to himself as for years, like since he was like little, little guy. And you mentioned thinking about possibly finding a better word to define yourself with, have you, since the, the point of the, the book being published? I absolutely love that your son has been referring to that as well during his whole life. I definitely didn't know if I was the only one who would come up with that terminology. And I'm so stoked that that your son has had an opportunity to identify himself. <laughs> I'm kind of giggling. As far as an update for the terminology, I, I'm still like figuring out, I don't, I don't actually have a really solid clear thing to say. Um, one thing that friends of mine and I have talked about though, is that my parents were also queer within their polyamory, like the predominancy of my parents identify as queer. So queer spawn does not mean to negate queer polyamorous children. Hmm. And I thought that was a really great thing for people to reach out and remind me of. That sometimes, like, the queering of your dynamic and your parents' identity, you are enough, you know? Like, I get to I get to hold the queer spawn title, being raised polyamorous. And that was a great reminder and felt really helpful. As far as, like, a polyam sort of moniker, mm-hmm. uh, I think that, like, that's totally fine. One of the things I've been trying to play around with also is, like, how children's speech because at we're we're trying to think of these things from an adult mind frame Mm. but like poly am and like poly apostrophe m or poly um are sounds that children naturally are making you know those soft consonants and just thinking feeling it in my mouth it makes sense that a kid would be like you know like i'm a polyam or like i'm a polyam (laughs) makes perfect sense to me and to my child mind Growing up in going through this process, it seemed like, and, and you kind of mentioned in the book, that there was sort of a, a pressure to be um, kind of like all you could be <laughs> poly kid. Um, at least that's what the impression I got in the book. And I know even with talking to my son, you know, he's like, I feel like I have to live up to like a, a specific standard. Is that true for you? And have you found with talking to other, you know, poly kids that that's a, a, a similar experience that others have had too? I think when talking to my other fellow poly kids, 
there's a range, mm. right? Um, there's, to put it a little bit bluntly, like there's a range of like how much you want to make your family proud, right? Mm. It doesn't even have to do with the non-monogamy sometimes. It's just like, what is your relationship to your family? Like, do you give a fuck about making them happy? <laughs> if you do, that's going to change that influence in your life. If you actively don't, then that's also going to change the influence in your life, right? So there's like a lot of family dynamics that are present in these conversations. And I just always, always really um, try and bring that to people's minds at the forefront. I know that I have a general anxiety disorder. And so me recognizing when my anxiety is like coming into play and building narrative has been really important and valuable. Because there is, at least in this like extended network style of polyamory I was raised in, there's the opportunity for many voices and opinions and um, the invisible audience can be very large when you're in a highly connected community, right? Or a, a network. So I know that I internalized a lot of that uh, support as pressure. And like I, when I was younger, I, I was just in it. And now I'm a little bit older. I have the chance to see that like, there's a lot of people who just want to support the shit out of you, you know, <laughs> like they just, they're so earnest in their support and love for you um, in your, you know, in your poly networks. The place that I find myself uh, most directly living out that sort of um, stress and pressure is in my own relationships. I have polyamorous relationships myself. Not all polyamorous children do, uh, but I do. And I've had to come to terms with the fact that like, I can't hold my partners to a perfection standard and I probably shouldn't hold myself to a perfection standard. Um, and I was, it's not that I was specifically taught a perfection standard of polyamory, but when you as a polyamorous parent are learning polyamory and then you like, you try and teach your children the, the best of something, you know, you try and teach them how to do things correctly so that they work. You try and teach them good from ill, right? You know, so when you're teaching these non monogamous ideals, you're teaching them in the ideological as ideal and you want to teach good ideals. So there's an opportunity for the kids to take that and be like, Oh, this is how the world should be. This is how I should be. This is how my family believes because it's familial first. I think I say that in the book, but like when you're in a polyamorous family, the polyamorous relation is familial, not erotic. Mm, very That's true. a key difference, right? Definitely. Um, and I think one other thing, you know, and it's funny because I didn't want to interrupt you, but going back to one of the things that you said, you you mentioned like some of this is stuff that it's because of all the support. And when we had the conversation with our son at one point, I was like, what are you feeling pressured about? And he's like, well, you're all proud of me and I don't want to <laughs> let you down. And I'm like, we're proud of you because you're you, <laughs> not because you're living up to anything. Yeah. And it's funny because it kind of links back to something that you do that you do talk about in the book is that a lot of this stuff, there's unique non-monogamy things. And then there's just stuff that is 
you know, having parents, having family, being a kid, being you, being a parent, where yeah. there are those dynamics, like the the kid wanting to be uh, something to be proud of, having that support and being like, well, what if I let you down? That isn't a non-monogamy thing. That's that's a family thing. And I think a lot of times folks get that concept mixed up. They think that somehow because families are shaped different, that everything is different. And a lot of times what I have to say to folks is, no, we're, we're, we're pretty much just a family with more people. <laughs> yep. Um, there's something interesting about that too. I've been recognizing that abundance issues are very real. Polyamory is a marginalized group of people, though not oppressed. And so the idea that you are, you have like from the kid's perspective, the idea that you have so many parents that are like, proud of you and support you and love you like it can it can be the it can be that feeling of abundance that's like almost too much and starts to feel overwhelming and you start to question you're deserving of it and so then you're like oh I better live up to this and that's something that it took me a really long time to learn like abundance issues are real uh, particularly uh, living in a marginalized group your whole life and I think that's something that a lot of folks overlook because it's like, well, abundance is great. And it's like, well, it is, but it also comes with its own unique challenges of things that, you know, as a parent or a child, you don't necessarily recognize right on the surface. It's not something that you can identify right away. So I appreciate you sharing that. So as far as, you know, so the the book's been out for a while and I'm sure some of your parents have read it. I'm sure some of your community as well as friends and strangers. What kind of feedback have you gotten? You know, I'm, I'm interested as far as like your parents and your community, but also just like other people that you don't know. So how, how has the, the feedback been about the book? So I was able to go to the Northwest where I'm from and uh, present the book at the beginning of my book tour and then also at the end of my book tour just sort of because of how schedules worked out. And I appreciated that opportunity because when I first released the book, I was very nervous and I had never done a book tour before. And I wound up like traveling all over the place in this very chaotic pattern and not getting to see my people very much or spend much time with them. And it felt a little chaotic. Uh, people were very proud of me and people were like urging me to go forth and do things. And we're so proud that I wrote it. Generally, I think it's some of my favorite feedback has been from my, my writers or my book readers who are like the typing and the, the face print is amazing. <laughs> or like, you know, like your, your use of like structure and all of the like writing feedback has been really great because they're telling me that they knew it was going to be an interesting story, but it was also, a, it is also a well-written book. And I was like, oh, snap, that's amazing. That, that felt amazing, you know? Um, and then I was able to go out on book tour and go to places I'd never been before and, and meet new people and go to like environments that scared me and share my story there and then come back with all of that experience to the Northwest, and I got to present in uh, the first sex toy shop that I ever walked into. Um, Babeland in Seattle 
was my first sex toy store that I ever set foot in and they offered to do a reading of my book. So it felt like a really great way to come back, you know, into my community and, and have a lot of returns. Um, and what was really fun about that event specifically was there were a lot of, uh, in, in my book, I talk about my summer camp. I was involved with an LGBT summer camp for many years in the Northwest. And at that reading in that sex toy store, there were like eight former campers of mine and like fellow staff and just like camp people. But specifically, I was like, oh, snap, I'm definitely in a sex toy store with my former campers. (laughs) They were all just so like wide eyed and interested in the story. And I think that's been a huge piece of feedback is like just how people do see themselves in it. Um, People from different backgrounds that are very, you know, not polyamorous say that they see themselves in the works. Um, Queer people that I think have more queer social capital than I do come up to me and are like, this is amazing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know? Um, So like the, the feedback has been like, again, it's that abundant positivity that I've seen. The people who might feel differently about it haven't spoken to me directly in my community. But I also, in my writing, uh, in the process of writing the book, tried very hard to reach out to everyone I had contact information with in a, a respectful way to ask them, like, hey, I wrote this piece. I want to put it in my book. It, here's how I represent you. You know, I've read, I read it to those people and got consent as much as I could. And the people I didn't get consent from, I really tried to put in the back burner as much as I could to tell the story in a coherent way. That's amazing. And I think that, you know, when, well, no, it's, it's one of those things that it can be overlooked, right? When we're telling our story and this happens a lot, right? When we're telling our story, we sometimes forget that our story is also made up of other people's stories. And mm-hmm. that having to reach out and and say, hey, you know, this is this is what I'm doing, and like, does this does this fit you? Is very powerful. So I did ask about like your parents. So like, you know, I'm I'm curious about that. How how was it received by your parents, and have all of them read it? I believe all of them have read it. Um, I get like <laughs> it was important. So I promised to get them a manuscript before it was released. Mm-hmm. And I did not. I didn't follow through on that opportunity, I think, because like stress and timing, et cetera. So that's a little bit of a heavy question because mm-hmm. I failed to do something that I promised I would do to show them that sort of respect. Um, so it's been an interesting conversation with each and every one of them about like their journey reading this thing that is public. I also experienced a tragedy in my family, a very very shortly before the book was released. And so the ideas of family and how we relate to family and how we share family with the world, being a bard is always fascinating because of what you just spoke to, you know, Um, making sure that you want to represent everybody really well. Mm -hmm. A clear distinction that I can talk about is that my bio dad said that he was working his way through it, but a lot of other people were reading it faster than he did. And so people were 
telling him that he came out looking like dad of the year or dad of the decade. And there are a couple of really great stories about the light, light shining parts of my dad. And then I got all nervous because I was like, oh, I don't, do I have enough bright shining stories about my bio mom? And so I like scoured the entire book. And then I realized that my bio mom, the energy of my bio mom is all the way through the book. Like the fundamentals that I was speaking to, I was learning with her. Everything I had learned was coming, you know, from her was coming through in the book. And so I I wanted to explain that to my bio mom. And that felt really important to me is like reading it again, I'm discovering, rediscovering and discovering anew the ways that I represented my parents and how I feel they're coming through, which is ridiculous because also like that's, that's, that's my subjective reader's experience also knowing the entire backstory. So yeah, it's a really big topic and there are (laughs) five of them. That's been my quote recently with my parents is I'm like, do you realize there are five of you? It is, it is all of your parental stuff times five. (laughs) So it's like a constant juggling act, not to make it sound chaotic, but it's family takes up a lot of your brain and, and time and space when you're connected. And so it's a, it's a big web that I'm always kind of like trying to keep track of. And then my parents also like make fun of me because they're like, Hey babe, we also survived before you were around, you know, and we can take care of ourselves. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) So with the book at this point, looking back, is there anything that you would have done differently? Is there anything that you would have, have done you know, you said that you didn't keep this promise. Maybe this is one of the things that you would have done differently is, is following up with that promise. Or is there anything else that you may have done or this differently with the book, either the way it was written or how you released it or anything like that? Yeah. Oh. All right. All right. All right. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm going to get deep with you. Is that okay? Absolutely. Okay. Um, so I think in the writing process, I would have not procrastinated as much. That's, that's a huge piece of it, but, um, and, and maybe do a little bit, a little bit every day. I know it's what a lot of people say is to just do, do the thing a little bit every day instead of binging the thing. I feel like that would have been a little bit more, it would have been easier on my mental health. And I, so my, my little sister passed away. Um, this was a sister through polyamory, but I'd known them for 10 years. Mm. And they specifically asked to adopt my mom. And it was one of the first times I had seen a, a, a poly kid ask that of an elder generation. I am still torn up about this. And... My sister passing happened about four days after I sent my final draft of my book to my publisher. Um, I re-edited the acknowledgement in the book to reflect my sibling. And subsequently, my job fell apart. My case management job just like kind of fell apart chaotically without my control or say. So I was dealing with like an inordinate amount of grief suddenly and I had six months to get my book released. 
and go on tour, which now I had to fund without a job. Mm. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that experience I would do differently <laughs> um, if I had any say about it. And subsequently, like, I had the time not working to have my grief and then dig into the small moments of like uh, coordination when I could. It also forced me to start using an, to start working with an assistant. And that has been an absolute boon for my mental health and my creative works. And, and just like working with other people in your field is a great idea and figuring out how to have those like collaborative relationships that benefit each other is wonderful. So, um, there was a lot that like came of it that only, you know, all things only happen as they can. But I honestly wish that because it was also very difficult to then figure out how to be ethical about talking about my family and having to sell something on a capitalist market and not just like performatively sell my family's story and therefore grief when it was so new. Yeah, that was really complicated, and I and I really hope I did a good job. Um, and it's this is the most I've ever talked about it on a podcast because I'm still fearful of that. Um, but you're a very well built, uh, you're a very well built interviewer, I must say. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that you know, I first off, I want to say I honor you for your honesty, and and I think for a lot of folks when we're faced with these decisions and situations, um, you know, a, a, a relative passing is a big deal, you know, and um, whether it's a, a gr- good experience or a bad, like a good one of being able to tour, having a book, um, all of those things are stressors, right? Um, we sometimes forget that positive stress is still stress. Totally. And going through, you know, that, um, yeah, I, I, I could imagine that there would be a lot of mixed feelings and wanting to be able to honor everybody, um, is a lot. That's why I was like, wow, that's a lot. <laughs> um, you know, that's yeah. not a, not a, not a position that, you know, I don't think anybody would know how to handle perfect. And it seems like you've done a good job of handling it with as much grace as possible. Thank you. That is really lovely to hear. Um, and it, you know, there are, there are many other like small logistical things that I wish I had done differently about tour, but just that, that sort of the feeling of being out of control, I think is one that can actually come up a lot in our relationships, especially when we're traversing things like figuring out how to build familial love, um, that you have no script for. (laughs) Um, so it's, it's something that I hope people can relate to. And folks, if you're if you're listening, I definitely, definitely recommend the book. If you are a poly kid or you're a poly parent, either one, pick up the book. Uh, you know, I got it on Kindle and take a look at it. Uh, this Heart Holds Many is a beautiful book. And uh, so, Co, now that we've kind of talked about the book, I'm going to talk about some subjects that are in there. But can I ask you some questions as a poly kid? Slash, uh, you know, for for those who might be poly parents listening or poly kids listening. Okay. Does that sound good? All right. So let's let's switch directions a little bit. One of the things that you talked about in the book, and I I love the term, you mentioned uh, the adult on deck. 
which just made me laugh so much because often in my experience as a as a poly parent, poly kids like to kind of play parents against each other and things like that. And you mentioned stuff like that in the book. For, you know, poly parents out there who are trying to be as supportive as they can be of their kids, but also give them the most, and I'm doing air quotes here, normal upbringing. Is there any suggestions that you have for them as far as, you know, dealing with that? Because I know with like my son, whenever someone says, what's the worst part of being a poly kid? And he's like, I have three adults who are making sure that I took out the trash and did the dishes. (laughs) He's like, I can't hide anything. So real. (laughs) Um, Okay, I heard a couple different questions in there, which is great. It's really rich. Um, So part of it is like, when you're dealing with an adult on, so what I've heard from the poly kids perspective is like, how do you manage having so many adults on deck? And then also from the like parents perspective, like what are some ways that you can easily implement your structure? So more so what I was asking, and it was more from the parent's perspective, and I was actually going to ask one from the kid perspective, um, is from the parent's perspective, right? How can you, with having so many chefs in the kitchen, if you will, allow your your kid to kind of have those natural hiccups and 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 uh trial and error things that you know kids want to have my son was talking i'll use this as an example so my son came home and he's kind of going through his teen angsty stage right because that's what teen boys do and he came home and he looks sad and i said dude what what's going on and he said hey i was talking to my friends and they were all complaining about their parents And how like, you know, the one didn't get to do this and didn't get to go anywhere because, you know, his mom was working. And this one was talking about how, you know, his dad couldn't take him to this. And I didn't have anything to add to that conversation. (laughs) So, um, you know, and I was like, are you really sad that you didn't get to complain about us? Is that what you're saying? But with that story, what I'm saying is, is, you know, as a parent, how can you give your your child that that space to make their own choices to have yeah to to make their own choices make mistakes because it's really easy to overparent as a group when you when you're an adult on deck basically you're the one in charge for for a particular period of time you're you're on shift essentially as like key parent and a kiddo um when a kiddo has an idea you go to the adult on deck run your idea past the adult right like pretty standard but when there is like your adult on deck is not your primary parent or is not even one of your your parents um there's or like that adult on deck doesn't have the answer they can say run it up the flagpole which means go check in with the other parents which which definitely brings up that like splitting you were speaking about earlier Mm -hmm. but also the like the light side of that is when I was a kiddo and I went to a parent, like I could come to my parents with any question and they really loved it when I came to them with a question and I displayed the self-directed learning. So they knew what I was interested in. They knew where I was at in my development by the questions I was asking. 
And then they would give me an age appropriate response. And then once I was full, I'd go munch on it for a while. And if they didn't have the answer to what I needed, then I was to run it up the flagpole and go check in with other people. So go get different perspectives, uh, go get consensus if it was a thing like a permission type thing, or just like run my idea past different people and see what came out of it. So they were very encouraging of me, like developing my own rapport with people who were trusted in the tribe and like utilizing my different parents with their different skill sets. And then also like then that was more readily applied to the greater world, you know? So we would like negotiate, you know, harm reduction for which streets I could cross based on their level of busyness, you know, but they still allowed me to cross the street in like an age appropriate and developmental way. It was just a lot more of a like equitable conversation. That's amazing. And I think that it's, it's one of those things that, you know, and actually, I'll link to it in the show notes. We had our, I mentioned before, we had our son on the show, um, episode 33, and I'll link to that. But he said that in his own little person words, that it's the the downfall as well as the benefit is having different people's perspectives and different people to go to because you have so much information. <laughs> Um, so, um, and, and, and different people to work with, you know, in, in his experience, you know, he talks about how he could go to one, one of us and he's had the benefit of, for example, my partner, Amanda is good at math. I am horrible at math. So he got the benefit of knowing that, you know, when he was struggling in middle school for math, he could go talk to Amanda and, you know, he talks about me being uh, the parent to go to for things like when he's dealing with his, you know, emotions or when he's sad, he knows that like I'm the I'm the I'm the parent that always like makes him feel better, and he knows that his dad's like the logical one. Each one of us brings our own our own sort of parenting style to the mix, even though that we're a unified front. We all have our own different parenting styles. Yeah, um, totally. So I'm going to flip the, the question around because you mentioned in the book, and I, I think that it's a really important thing. So you mentioned many times in the book needing to define yourself and, and needing to figure yourself out as far as your relationship style and your identity and doing that like on your own. Do you have any suggestions for kiddos who might be listening to this and you know have parents who are queer, non-binary, polyamorous, you know, kinky? Etc. Etc. Add on, add on, and are trying to find themselves. Like what they can do to, you know, basically find their own unique identity and figure out who they really are. Mm. What I have always said is that you can find your tribe. Right. I know that that is a word that is related to indigeneity. And my family also looked to create collectivism within our networks, right? And collectivist culture is different than, than individualistic culture, right? And uh, so we have our little family cultures that we create and have that then you need to sort of like break away from a little bit. And break away is, is a little bit of a... a 
dramatic term, but you, you get to sort of like incorporate newness into your selfhood. So go do new things or go do the things that you have that inkling that you know you love and dive in. This is your time to explore, um, particularly if you're in like your late teens, your early 20s, your mid 20s. And if you're afraid to ask deep, hard questions, potentially like use different different learning styles. So if you're afraid to ask a big question, try writing it down. If you're afraid to write something down, try asking yourself it while you're like jumping up and down in a circle to engage your body. Like do weird stuff um, (laughs) to help figure out like what feels good for you, um, how you work through your own emotions. And then on like an emotional level uh, and intellectual level, Give yourself a little bit of space and grace to be, to acknowledge the shiny and to acknowledge the dark. For myself, I had to acknowledge the darkness. I've been, uh, some feedback I've gotten is that I only talk about the light parts of polyamory. And I don't, I think that's because a lot of people realize I, I have to defend it all the time, constantly. So I think for me, acknowledging the fact some of the like more chaotic parts that now I'm dealing with as an adult or how having this like surplus of relationships in my life means that I feel a little overloaded when I'm trying to find my own mentors so recognizing that those shadows exist allowing yourself to be angry about them and then also reminding yourself that your parents were and are doing the best that they know how to do based on what they've got. And like those three things helped me get through a lot of, a lot of the process of like finding myself. So finding your peers, finding the people that you joke well with and feel comfortable around, and then having the deep conversations within those safe places, building resiliency to be vulnerable with each other and then, like, being able to acknowledge the complexity of the experience without, like, blaming your parents wholeheartedly. And then hopefully being able to have those conversations with your parents. My parents, have, both my bio parents have said they've learned a lot about being a poly parent from talking with me about my experience of parenting. Because you're in it, you know, and you're reflecting, but it's hard to gain a lot of re- true retrospective on the experience when you're in it. Absolutely. I think the other thing that I would throw in that I've I've tried to tell my son time and time again is you mentioned like the time to explore is is in your, you know, later teens and your early 20s and one of the things that I I've I've said to him many times is, you know, you don't have to choose right now either. When you're when you're trying to figure out your own identity and you're trying to figure out who you are, Mm-hmm. It, it's okay to change your mind. It's okay to go back and say, "Wait, well, I, I, I don't know that that doesn't that doesn't suit me anymore. That doesn't that 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 hat doesn't fit anymore." You know, um, totally. And you know, not to get stuck in feeling like you have to stay once you, once once you've take ownership of something that you have to keep it. <laughs> um, and that's just not how identities are. You can you can be whoever you want to be. 
um, and what actually serves you. Um, and that might be different. You know, who who you are at 16 may be very different than who you are at 25. I know for me personally, I'm definitely a different human. <laughs> yeah. Yep. If you could give one bit of advice for poly parents, those who are, you know, in polyamorous relationships and have kids. Um, we actually have a show where we talk about how to be a kick-ass poly parent. Um, and I'll, I'll link to that. And that's some, some tips on, you know, how to interact with your children, introduce them to your partners, things like that. But if you could give one piece of advice, right? One, one major piece of advice to parents, what would it be? Don't assume their emotional maturity. Um, sounds a little counterproductive. Also just want to put out there that kids are extremely smart and emotionally smart. Um, but the places that I was exposed to aspects of my culture, I think a little, a little too early, um, or in, in a way that we were trying to figure out if was okay. And there's this balance, right, of like not wanting to be a super staunch parent or wanting to be a sex positive parent or a nude positive parent um, or like just seeing the sheer emotional maturity come out of your child and wanting to honor that and cultivate it. I know I do this, I do healthcare work and this happens with me and the children I care for as well. And like taking things slow and at like a slow, even pace and checking in after you've done a step. Even if the kid is like, I don't know why we're talking about this. Everything's fine. Like take the moment, though that rhythm and those actions and how you build introducing your child to maturity in general is vastly more complicated because of the lifestyle dynamics at play. And, and what I mean by that is like looking at some of the intersections around like how kink and poly interact, right? Or like how, you know, how you're layering these um, different dynamics and structures is complex. So just remember that you're like teaching a kid on hard mode. <laughs> um, so give their emotions some time and some space to build their own reserves. Does that make sense? I could Absolutely. give an example. Absolutely. Uh, it makes sense for me, but if you'd like to give an example for the listeners, that'd be great. Cool. Um, so I know, and similarly, I do a lot of work around like, how can we build age appropriate metaphors for these things? Right. But um, I think a failing point that is difficult because it intersects with class, but a failing point in my family was that my bedroom was situated with direct vent access, the ventilation access of the house, so that I could hear everything that was happening in one of my parents' bedrooms. And so, like, sex noise, like, sex noises triggered me for a long time because I was stuck in a place and situation that I couldn't get out of. And I gained a lot of resentment and I had to gain a lot of emotional maturity without my consent, you know? So when we're thinking about having our freedoms and even if the child has 
intellectual context, making sure that there's enough space for the emotion, enough emotional breadth for the situation. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. Absolutely. Thank you. This is, this is wonderful. (laughs) I love your questions. So before we wrap up, are you down for doing the speed round? Yeah, let's figure it out. All right. So the, the thing is, is it's 60 uh, seconds to answer the questions. Nobody makes it in 60 seconds. So just try. Um, And as we go through, don't try to overthink the questions. It's supposed to be fun. We'll go through them. And at the end, you don't really win anything aside from being cool. Got it. <laughs> All right. So let's get started. The first question is, what is something you're not very good at? Um, getting places on time. Me too. Best piece of relationship advice you've ever received? Don't go to bed mad. What are three things you couldn't live without? Ooh, um, a cloak my mother made me, um, uh, a pair of poi, and a pen. What turns you on? Ooh, um, uh, a, a good kinesthetic awareness. Tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on. Um... Humans should not be in space. (laughs) A book you would recommend to our listeners that's not yours? Uh, Princess, Princess Ever After by Katie O'Neill. What is your biggest fear? Um, uh, Astrophobia and dying alone. What's the most adventurous thing you've ever done? This can be a sexual thing or non-sexual thing, but the most adventurous. Uh, um, oh God, uh, brain overload. I'm going to pick, um, having sex on the rim of a volcano at the edge of the ocean. That's pretty awesome. I'm jealous. Uh, who is your movie slash TV star famous person crush? Oh my gosh. So, um, our birthday is in three days. She is my future wife. She just, we haven't met yet, um, but Angelina Jolie and I will someday invite you to our wedding. <laughs> uh, only if I'm inv- involved in an orgy afterwards. Um, that's my crush. Angelina's mine. Um, really? Yes, yeah. I love Angelina. Oh. oh my gosh. Oh, since I was little. And I found out that she and I actually do have the same birthday, which is in three days. So... Oh, well, happy birthday. All right. Back back to the questions. What's something you're working on right now that you'd like our listeners to know about? Uh, Patreon. I'm working really hard on my Patreon. Uh, Different content for every level having to do with like non-monogamous media and my life. All right. And where can folks find you? At co-create. That is K-O-E-C-R-E-A-T-E or co-creation. Same spelling online. And folks, we'll link to all of Co's social media stuff and Patreon where you can find in the show notes. All right. And I, you know, before we let you go, I just have to say, yes, Angelina's hot and amazing. Now I'm all like Angelina brain, but it has been a pleasure having you on the show, folks. Uh, Co is amazing. Check out their Patreon, check out their book, go buy it. It is awesome fantastic. And we'll put all those links again in the show notes. 
Thanks Thank for coming you on. so much, Cassie. You are wonderful to work with, and I will hopefully talk to you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, where we're building relationships outside of the box. Got a question about kink, power exchange, or open relationships that you've been holding on to for years? This is the place to ask it. Submit your question at atouchofflavor.com slash ask, or leave us a voicemail at 833-ASK-TOF1. 